take our Bibles, turn to John chapter 3 this morning. John chapter 3, if you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. If you're visiting with us, we do have a children's church available for first through third grade. They can slip out and follow the crowd and the teachers going right down to the left, and you can pick them up uh, just after the service across the hallway from the nursery, the classroom right there. John chapter 3, our text begins in verse 31 this morning. Let's begin our service with prayer. Lord, as we look into your word, we ask the God of all grace to be gracious to us that we may see and that we may believe. As we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. John chapter 3 is a loaded chapter, the premier chapter in the Gospels regarding the concept of salvation. And here, as John the Baptist passes off the scene in verse 30, he ends with this statement, he must increase, I must decrease. And for every child of God, we are left with a question, and that question is, what is it about Jesus that forces us all to that same statement? And if you're here and you're you're not a Christian, the question that is in your mind is, what is it about Jesus that allows him to make a claim on my heart, to call me to submission, to call me to faith, to call me to obedience. What is it about this person of Jesus that would allow him to say that at his name of Lord, every knee will bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth? What is it about this Jesus? Verse 31 begins the conclusion of chapter 3. Some would believe that this is John the Baptist continuing his statement. I believe this is the Apostle John. You know, there were no quotation marks in in the Greek, and so we have to make some interpretational stances here. I, I think John the Apostle is answering the questions I just posed for you in this text. That if you come to this and you say, but I want to increase... Or do I really have to embrace Jesus as Lord? The Apostle John gives us a treatise on the nature of Christ. I'd like to show you in John chapter 3, verses 31 to 36, six statements regarding the nature of Christ that earn him the title of the preeminent one, that earn him the title of Lord, that place him in the position last week on that seesaw in which you must go down because he must go up. Six statements that, if properly understood, will drive you to your knees in repentance and worship. And so let's read verses 31 through 36 together, and we'll look at these six truths. 
He must increase, I must decrease. Why? Because he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. I heard it said this week, and I agree with this statement, that accurate preaching is simply an elongation of the text. And I think when we look at these verses, you may read through that and go, I don't really understand what this is, what this means, or I don't understand what the big deal is. And my goal for you in these six statements is to take each verse and to stretch it apart that you may see the grandeur of Jesus Christ. And so the first truth that I'd like to draw your attention to is found in verse 31, and it's this. Jesus has a heavenly, eternal origin. Jesus has a heavenly, eternal origin. He who comes from above. He who comes from heaven. Standing in contrast to he who is of the earth. John is giving us a contrast between Jesus and every other person. There's something about Jesus that is different. What is it? There is something about this person of Christ that sets him apart from every other human being. What is it? Is that he com- it is that he comes from above and he comes from heaven. This is referencing the eternal heavenly origin of Jesus in contrast to the earthly temporal origin of all other people. And because of this, you see the repeated phrase in verse 31, he is above all. We saw that reflected in our scripture reading. You'll see so many parallels between our scripture this morning for the sermon and the scripture reading in Colossians chapter 1. It's interesting we need to note, though, in, in, that John has been referencing the world, the world, the world, and that's the word cosmos, and, and, it, and it means a fallen humanity. It, it means the, the desires and the affections that are driven by sin. Thus, John can later say, love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. For God so loved the world, fallen humanity in general, not talking about a specific group of people, but talking about in general, fallen humanity, Jesus, or God loves the world, and so he sent his son. That's not the word that we see in verse 31 of earth. Every time you see the word world, it carries with it this idea of a a tainted by sin uh, group. But here, rather than using cosmos, John uses ge to to, to signify earth, of, of the earth, temporal, physical, created. The uncreated one 
in contrast to those who were created. It's not a statement of Jesus being sinless and everyone else being sinful, although that is true. His contrast here is a contrast of temporal versus eternal. Uncreated versus created, that he is the uncreated one and that the, the, the concept, the truth that separates Jesus from everyone else is that Jesus is the creator God. And everyone else is the creation. He comes from above. He is from heaven. Everyone else comes from this earth. And so we have the concept here of both the location of Jesus being in heaven and the status of the Son of God being eternal. And this eternal God in the second person of the Trinity being unified with a human nature in the person of Christ at the moment of conception. And thus we have a biblical truth that we are going to be unfolding throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. You need to know what it is. It may, the, the, the term may sound a little bit scary, but if you stick with me, I'll explain what it means and why it's so important because your eternal state is hanging in the balance here. It is the phrase, the term, hypostatic union. Hypostasis meaning person, union meaning coming together, that in the, in the hypostasis of Christ, the, the, the person of Christ, we have the union of humanity and deity. This is foundational to your Christian life. It is foundational to your salvation. And no, you may not know all of these details, but you cannot reject this and be a born-again believer, friend. And so it is imperative that, yes, I preach, but that we also teach these doctrinal truths that you may come to a fuller knowledge of who Jesus is. The goal is that when you get to heaven and you see Jesus, you recognize him and he is who you expect him to be because he's the one that you believe in, that you're not surprised by his character, that you're not surprised by aspects of Christ that he revealed in Scripture. And so we need to pause and we need to look at this union of God and man in the, the person of Christ. And in order to do that, I'm going to ask that you pay very close attention here and that you recognize that this is valuable and this is so important for your faith. The God that we worship is one. He is one in essence. He is one God, but in that essence, in that nature of God, we have three persons, the Father, Son, Spirit, all three co-equal, co-eternal. You could say one essence, three subsistences, one nature, three persons, however you want to put it. We have one God shown in or, or, or made up of three persons. One God, three persons, one essence. And we have to be so careful with what we say so we don't misrepresent God here. And of those three persons, you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They're often referred to as the first person, second person, third person, not in order of importance or in rank, but simply in order of distinction. 
And God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, fully being God, took on another essence, took on a human nature. And so in the Trinity, you have one essence with three persons. In the second person, you have one person with two essences, with two natures. You have the Son from the moment of the incarnation for the rest of all of eternity. You now have a God-man, truly God, truly man, and that he is everything that it means to be God, and he is everything that it means to be man brought into union in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at this, the reason I go into this, friends, is because you need to know the boundaries of what is true. And there are two heresies that many people fall into that we need to talk about. And, and as, as Pastor Ben often says very wisely, that, that systematic theology, the goal of systematic theology is to set up fences of truth that we can't understand in our human mind these concepts, but we can make truth statements about it and we can make negative statements about it. This is not true. In other words, it is not true that we worship three gods. It is true that we worship one God. It is not true that, that, that Yahweh is one person. He is three persons in one essence. And so we can make truth statements, but if you ask me to understand what that means or, or to give you an illustration, I can't. But we can set up the statements here. And so with the nature of Christ, the reason this is so important is because for the rest of the Gospel of John, we are going to see the, this God-man living out his life. And I'll give you an illustration when we look at the woman at the well, we have Jesus who is exhausted and tired sitting at the well. And yet he tells this woman, I will give you springs that will well up into eternal life. And so we see this union of God and man. Two, two dangers that we must stay away from. The first one is a heresy that would see Jesus as a blended nature of God and man versus two natures of God and man. A monophysite heresy. This would see him as a deified human or as a humanized deity. Think of like Hercules. He's a humanized deity or he's a human that's just more than man, or he's a deity that's just less than God. But friends, if this is true, then he is both not a man and he is not God. For in trying to blend the two natures, you lose both. So we reject the monophysite heresy. And then you have Nestorianism, which is that he has a separate, they are not unified in him. He has a separate deity and a separate humanity. And so you see him 
acting as man, and you see him acting as God. And then when you look in the New Testament, you can say, well, here's where he acted as man, and here's where he acted as God, and we separate the two. But we must understand that though we need to distinguish between the two, we cannot divide the two natures as the Nestorians do, because if you say that, when Christ hung on the cross, he died as a man, and therefore cannot be your substitutionary atonement for sin. He must have a unified nature that paid the price on the cross. And so we must distinguish but not divide. We cannot blend. We must make truth statements here about the nature of Jesus. This is important. So important that in 449 and 451 in the 5th century, the church came together. 500 church leaders came together at the Council of Ephesus and Chalcedon asking the question, how can Jesus be both human and God? And they presented at the conclusion, they met from, August, from October 8th all the way to November 1st and, and debated with Scripture, coming to biblical conclusions, compiling not just what Scripture says, but, but what it teaches on this topic, being consistent with the scriptural uh, authority that we have. And they write the following which I believe is an accurate representation of what Scripture teaches from the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Recognized as two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union. In other words, because he became man, that does not mean that he's any less God, and because he is God, does not make him any less man. By nature, by, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person, and subsistence, not as separated into two persons, but the same Son, only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we say he is truly man and truly God. Pastor Ben and I did a podcast for our church podcast Friday afternoon on this topic, and I would encourage you to listen to it. This is vitally important. For if you believe that Jesus is created, you have not embraced the true gospel. If you reject his deity, he is not your God. And if you reject his humanity, he could not live in active obedience, thus fulfilling the law on your behalf, thus dying in your place. And so you must have both. And so we have this union that makes him above all, the preeminent one, Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him were all things created. He is the preeminent one because he has an origin that is both heavenly and eternal. And yes, incarnate, joined the human nature and the divine nature in the person of Jesus, distinct but not divided, recognized but not confused or blended. Not only is, does he have a heavenly and eternal origin, number two, he is an eyewitness to divine knowledge. Look at verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. 
yet no one receives his testimony. Because Jesus is the perfect union of God and man, he has existed from eternity past with the Father, the Son of God has existed with the Father and the Spirit. John tells us that Jesus, in his divine nature as the Son of God, existed in eternity past, from eternity past, with the Father and the Spirit, and is an eyewitness to the truth, what he has seen and what he has heard. That you receive revelation, Jesus is the revelation. That he holds a status that is above all because he's an eyewitness to the Father. The implication of this statement in verse 32 is that Jesus is not coming up with his own message. He is not inventing something to preach, but he is revealing the Father. And so in Colossians chapter 1, as we read in our scripture reading, he is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God. Yet we have this shocking statement as a second part of this verse. No one has received his testimony. And John is using a literary technique here called hyperbole. It doesn't mean that no one listened to Christ. It means that very, very, very few. I mean, you've heard this in your own house from your mom, right, kids? Is no one listening to me? Right? You've heard that. Doesn't anybody care? hyperbole. And here John is making a statement that even though Jesus was an eyewitness as the Son of God in eternity past, people rejected him. Can you believe that? And he draws our attention to this concept because he uses the same word. Look down at verse 32. Bear witness and testimony is the same word. You could say Jesus is the first-hand testimony to what we've seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He's the only one who has seen the Father and has heard the truth in eternity past. And yet this one, this only eyewitness account, people reject. You know, today the world in general is amiable to Jesus, meaning that if you bring up Jesus in our world today, people don't look at him with outright hatred like you would someone like a, like a Hitler or a Stalin. That normally, if, if you say the word Hitler in a positive light, the vast majority of humanity would think that you were a terrible person because Hitler was a wicked person and people hate him for what he did in the Holocaust. And you have to understand that in the first century, there were, there were no neutral people in regards to Jesus. They hated him because he stood for everything that they were against. And he was against everything that they were for. And friend, what you have to realize in your life is that when you get a view of who Jesus truly is, there is no neutrality. You either believe him or you don't. As C.S. Lewis famously said, he is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is Lord. Isaiah prophesied this would take place in Isaiah 53. We read it this morning. Rejected by men. 
Friends, let's be reminded this morning of two things, points of application. Number one, people's acceptance of the truth has no bearing on whether or not that is true, okay? So whether or not you believe it doesn't have any bearing on whether or not it's true. If I don't believe that, well, it doesn't change the fact that it's true. I mean, you can argue with a preschooler all you want that two plus two is four, right? But it doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter whether you believe it's true or not. It is true. And so whether someone accepts it has no bearing on the veracity of the claim of the absolute preeminence of Jesus Christ. Secondly, you have to recognize that this pattern of Christ being rejected is the same pattern that we see today. So do not be shocked when you share the gospel and people reject you for they rejected Christ. That broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life eternal. And so when we preach the gospel and the crowds run away, we don't get discouraged or think something's wrong with the message. We recognize that Jesus came bearing eyewitness, the only eyewitness to the truth, and they rejected his witness. They rejected him. Jesus has an eternal heavenly origin. Why can he make the demands on your life that he does? Why is he preeminent and above all? Because he has an eternal heavenly origin. Number two, he is an eyewitness to divine knowledge. Thirdly, Jesus is the full truth of God. He is the full truth of God. Look at verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony, there it is again, his eyewitness account, sets his seal to this, that God is true. Verse 32 tells us none will receive Christ. Verse 33 reminds us that there are some who will. Although it seems as though all are walking away, God has preserved a remnant. Like the dear prophet of God who was so depressed because he said, am I alone the prophet that's left? The only one who loves you. And God says, Thousands who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Although most will reject, many will come. And whoever receives the testimony of Jesus Christ receives the truth of God. Let me admonish you, friends, to accept Christ for who he is, not who you want him to be. If you do not know your scripture, you run the risk of accepting a Jesus of your own imagination. Of accepting a Jesus of, of someone who told you that Jesus was like this, or Jesus was like this. Or Jesus would never, or Jesus would definitely. But you need to accept His testimony. The Jesus according to Scripture. And there's another implication here that's huge, and that is when you get Jesus, you get God. And when you get God, you get Jesus. You cannot come to God without Christ, and you cannot come to God and reject Christ. 
The God of every other religion is a false God. God and Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and Allah are not the same God. There is one that is true and one that is false. And whoever accepts the testimony of Jesus comes to the one true God. You cannot have God without Jesus, and you cannot have Jesus without God. So come to the Father through Christ, is what he's saying. He is the statement of truth. He is the full truth of God. There is no truth outside of him. All that is true either flows from Christ or is a reflection of Christ. For he is the full truth of God. Accepting Jesus as your Lord is the essence of what it means to believe and to obey what God requires. Jesus is the full truth of God. That's why he is worthy of your worship, worthy of your praise, and worthy of your life. Number four, verse 34. Jesus possesses the fullness of the Spirit. Let's read verse 34 together. Look down with me at this verse. For he whom God has sent, that's Jesus, utters the words of God. There's his testimony, his eyewitness testimony once again. For he gives the Spirit without measure. And I can, I can tell you that when I was first studying this verse, I, I, I believed that this verse was saying that Jesus gives without measure the Spirit to those who believe. And that is a true statement. But that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying something that will blow, I mean, every one of these statements will blow your mind. This verse is saying that in the person of Jesus, in the union of the nature of God and the nature of man, distinguished but not divided. God gave that man, Jesus, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had access to the Holy Spirit in an unhindered way because he had no sin nature. He had no warring inside of him, like you and I do. He had no lusts of the flesh rising up from within him. He had no tainting of sin on his human body. He had no sin nature to affect his mind and his memory. He had no sin nature to affect his human nature. And thus, had the fullness of the Spirit upon him and access to that Spirit in a full way. His communion with the Father through the Spirit was unbroken and unhindered. Yes, he had external sin that was tempting him from the outside, but not from the inside. 
And thus, when we see the communion of God with his Father, we have a taste of what it could be like. How did Jesus live an obedient life? I'll read you Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, which reveals to us how he obeyed the law. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, listen to this unbelievable phrase. Listen carefully. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now listen carefully. Listen carefully. This is why this is so important. Jesus lived his perfect life by through the means of full and total faith, unhindered by his sin nature. Full and total faith and fervent prayer. This is why, and I think our ladies just are experiencing this in their Bible study with, um, with the studying the union of Christ. As Jesus grew in favor with God in Luke chapter 2. That favor doesn't mean God liked him more. What it means is that as a two-year-old, Jesus could obey his father according to his experience because he was fully man. And as a four-year-old, he could obey more because of his deepened human knowledge and his experience. And as a 10-year-old, he could obey even more as his vocabulary grew and his brain developed. And as as a 20-year-old, in his maturity, he could obey his father even more. As a human, as he experienced different things in his faith, his perfect faith deepened. And in every step of the way, he ran to his father in perfect faith and in fervent prayer. He obeyed every point of the law as a man so that you don't have to, so that he could stand in your place. And it was his very, his very, his, uh, his nature of deity, his God nature that was unified with his human nature that allowed that to be possible with no sin and the fullness of the Spirit upon him. And thus, at his baptism, You have God the Father looking at a man and saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Do you get this? Do you understand what's happening? I mean, it'll blow your mind that Jesus as the union of God and man accomplishes redemption for you. That, that he accomplished the active obedience of Christ through perfect faith and fervent prayer. <clears throat> and friend, 
We don't have perfect faith, but we do have fervent prayer. And as we live in faith, and as you pray to God to find victory from your sin, you obey like Jesus. That when temptations come, and you believe that God has redeemed you, that he has broken the chains of sin, that though sin comes knocking, you have no need to open the door, and you pour your heart out before God in fervent prayer with tears and supplication, and sometimes sweat and tears before God as you fervently pray and you obey in faith, you look like Jesus did. And the goal of this life is that you would have deeper faith and more fervent prayer, thus you would look more like Christ. And here, all that is wrapped up in this phrase that the fullness of the Spirit is given to him. Incredible. It's just a treatise here on Christology. Number five. Each one of these could be an hour sermon. And I, and I hope what I'm doing is I'm just, I'm just showing you how beautiful this can be if you just care enough to study it. If you just care enough to think about it. How beautiful can your Jesus become? Number five. Jesus is the recipient of the full love of the Father. The Father is called the Father because he pours out his love to the Son. And the Father and Son and Spirit in eternity past existed in total harmony as the Father did what fathers do in pouring out love to the Son. And the Son did what sons do in receiving the love of the Father. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son with a perfect, eternal, infinite love. I want you to listen to John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. This is an eternal, abounding, ever-flowing love. Jeremiah 2 refers to God as a spring of living water that is overflowing with life and love that he's pouring into the Son in all of eternity that the Son then pours into us through the Spirit when we're saved. For God to love is not just something that the Father does. It's part of his very nature. For Scripture tells us through the Apostle John that God is love. The recognition that God is love is a proof for the eternality of the Son. For if the Son did not exist in eternity past, the only object is for God to love himself, the Father to love himself. And yet we have the eternal Son whom the Father is eternally pouring his love into. Jesus then takes that love that the Father has 
for him and gives it to us. But not only that, listen to this. John 17, 22 and 23. The glory that you've given me, I give to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me, listen to this, and that you loved them even as you love me. Have you ever doubted God's love? Unsaved person, non-Christian, listen carefully. Are you looking for love? Are you searching in all the wrong places to find a love that will never end? Find it flowing from God. That when you turn to Christ in faith, you find the very love that Jesus, that the Father has in all of eternity pouring into the Son, now pouring into you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, God has demonstrated his love for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and God loves you. So much that he sent his son as a demonstration of that love. But yet there is a special love. A special love that God holds for his children. In the Old Testament it's called the hesed love. The covenant keeping, faithful, steadfast love that will never end. So if you're looking for love, come to Christ and find that covenant, unbreakable, never-ending, never-stopping love flowing from God into your heart. Lastly, Jesus is the only source of eternal life. Look at verse 36 with me. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son or whoever rejects the Son, you can phrase that either way, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friend, there's no other way to the love of the Father than through Jesus. Notice the clear statement of verse 36. Your salvation, your eternal life, is based on belief in the Son. Do not reject him, for your unbelief will cause damnation. Believe in the Son. To reject the Son is to reject God. To believe the Son is to possess eternal life. And this contrast that he gives in verse 36 is the contrast between the belief that leads to life and the unbelief that leads to God's wrath, to eternal damnation in hell. It's given in verse 36 between the word believes and translated do not, does not obey or rejects. It's shown to us in the book of Acts. Listen carefully in the book of Acts, verses 1 through 4. Now at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas are speaking and preaching. And these same two words that are given to us in verse 36 are linked in Acts chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. At Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews, the ones who did not obey, the ones who rejected Christ, 
stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Acts chapter 14, some believed, some rejected. Acts chapter 19, verses 8 and 9, they entered into the synagogue. Here's Paul preaching at Ephesus. He spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, it's the same word that's here in verse 36, does not obey. They continued in their unbelief. That you are born in a state of unbelief. And if you continue in that unbelief, you will, verse 36, remain under the wrath of God. From the moment you are born, you are born a child of wrath, born in unbelief, and it is your unbelief that sends you to hell. But you can turn to Christ in faith. And that belief, that faith in Christ, as you cross the bridge of faith to get to Christ, don't try to cross through good works, don't try to cross through church attendance, don't try to cross through giving money, you cross only by faith. And when you by faith come to Christ, you then believe and are granted eternal life and are granted the eternal love of the Father. Those who remain outside of Christ remain under the wrath of God and will not see life. Friend, turn to Jesus now. If you're here and you're not saved, call out to Christ and embrace him as your Lord and your King. Cling to Christ. Have faith. Believe that the the Jesus of the Bible is the only way to God. Claim him as your savior. Lay hold of him as your king. Bow now by choice so that in eternity you will not bow by force. For Philippians chapter 2 says that there is coming a day when every knee will bow of things heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, because you will give God glory. You will confess Jesus is Lord. You will bow your knee to him, and God will get glory from that confession. The question is, will you confess that on this earth, or will you confess it only in the next And without a confession on this earth, you will spend eternity separated from the goodness and grace and love of God in hell. But believing in Christ on this earth enters you into a relationship with the God of the universe that is flowing with love and grace and eternal life. So the application point to these six verses is bow before Jesus based on who he is. Don't create a Jesus of your own imagination that one day, one day, you will not recognize and he will say, depart from me. I read a very sad account this week and I won't get it all right. My heart broke and I actually started to have tears well up in my eyes as I read the account of the founder of of the Satan worship movement in the West today. As he has written books 
and was the leader of the Satan worship movement, and I read a firsthand account of someone sitting by his bedside as he died. And his last words were, my God, what have I done? And friend, what a scary place to be. So may you bow now by faith and accept this glorious Jesus as your God and find the Father who is pouring his love out to his children. Find forgiveness from sin and eternal life in heaven. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this mind-shattering, staggering, seismic truth. These statements on the person of Christ. As John wants to make sure we don't miss it. That those who believe in him find life through his name. And all of these things have been written that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I pray that you would give each child of God a renewed vision of the Christ that they worship. And that you would give to those that are here that are unsaved that you would give them a heart of flesh, that your spirit would make them alive, that they would place their faith and trust in Christ alone and thus find the love of the Father. 